everybody. I'm Karen Hartglass, and you are listening to It's All About Food. I am here with somebody I met quite some time ago at one of those veg events. I'm just going to jump right in. Mark Rifkin, thank you for joining me on It's All About Food. I know you have a lot to say, and I want to hear at least a bit of it today. Well, thank you very much, Karen. It's a pleasure to see you again and be on your podcast. I think we met at Vegan Summerfest. Since that time, you've done a lot. Just briefly, since I've known you, what have you been doing? I've become a registered dietitian, and I've had a I've been working in a very variety of settings. My initial intent was private practice, but that turned out to be require a lot of skill sets I was didn't necessarily master, which was marketing. Mm. So I ended up working in a low income clinic for a while where I didn't only see obesity, but morbid obesity, you know, all the rates and the severity of disease were multiplied several times over that of the general population. Um, then I decided to go back to private practice. Didn't turns out I didn't know anything more than I knew previously. <laughs> and I said, okay, this isn't working. And so then I went to work for my professional association of dietitians working on nutrition policy, where I've spent most of the last seven years. And then a year and a half ago, I got a job that's probably as close to my dream job as I've ever had, which is working for an environmental organization advancing plant-based diets for sustainability. And along the way, just because I'm a, a glutton for punishment, I decided to return for a second master's in environmental science and policy. So despite having, you know, much experience reading research and in the environmental arena and how vegan and vegetarian diets impact the environment, I didn't have any graduate coursework in it. So I figured if I'm going to talk about sustainability, I need to go back and, and do that. So I went to a small school called Johns Hopkins <laughs> and uh, completed that this past fall. And now I'm working uh, for a major, as I said, a major environmental and NGO, probably the only major NGO that makes plant-based diets a primary part of its programming, specifically. Not just meat reduction or this fantasy concept of less meat, better meat, but actual meat reduction. I mean, there's perhaps one other organization that comes close to us, but um, in terms of their program content, but... Ultimately, I'd like to see the rest of the environmental community jump on board, which they've, of course, you know, shall we say, been reluctant. Absolutely. Well, it has to do with funding, right? Funding, uh, primarily, um, especially not only, I suspect primarily not from small donors, but from large donors. They don't want to be seen as controversial and those crazy vegans, they don't want to be aligned with that. Gosh knows. Now that, shall we say, climate, the climate crisis and its effects are in our face, they are now confronting the effects of their reluctance. It's becoming a little bit more front and center for a lot of environmental NGOs. The granddaddy of them all, Sierra Club, is in the midst of a hot debate internally. Right. I mean, it's only taken, what, 40 years? Right. Well, you don't want to rush these things. Yeah, I remember trying working with them and and getting things 
published with them or whatever, and there was so much pushback because you couldn't come out and say that we needed to be on a plant-based diet and a plant diet. We say plant-based, but that term has been extremely abused. I'm just curious. You've been vegetarian since 1984, I think, and I don't know when you went vegan. You can tell me. But what was the motivation, the primary uh well the the background was i was an omnivore up until 1984 like most of my peers um and uh then i discovered a professor in my undergrad years of course when i had hair (laughs) and the professor probably was quite literally a holdout from 1968 um religion chinese philosophy and he was a vegetarian and very likely the first vegetarian i ever met he he taught a class called environmental ethics and at this point i was intent on majoring in environmental studies and you know i didn't know what the class was about but to me protection of the environment is not mandated because it's consistent with the law It's, it's what's moral and ethical it was all about the ethics of the environment, not what some law book says. So lo and behold, come to find out he's a vegetarian and Animal Liberation by Peter Singer is one of the textbooks. Mm, wow. Which has just come out a revised edition, right? I think one so. Of, one of Peter Singer's books has just been updated. Yeah. Needless to say, I was I was not actually convinced the first semester because I was still locked on this concept of humane slaughter. And, and I, and my taste buds were getting in the way, and the you know famil- familiar flavors. And who wants to eat salad all day? I'm certainly not going to eat salad all day. That just seems very unsatisfying. <laughs> and the the next semester, uh, somebody brought uh, he proctored a class. Somebody brought in a film about meat, and it knocked my head off. Um, mm part of what I call the big lie, which is, oh yeah, we can, we can slaughter humanely. I had no clue what I was getting into, but as a young, naive college student, I was felt I'd been a victim of a lie communicated by society as a whole. I don't know if I'd call it a conspiracy, but it's darn close. I just wonder how is it that you got it and so many people don't get it or didn't get it because there were other people in the class. They didn't all become vegetarian or vegan. Right. It's like you were a fly on the wall, Karen. (laughs) Well, I looked back a few years later and you know what? Uh, I decided I, I concluded it was because not only was it moral, morally and ethically right to do this, but I identified with the, with the animals because my childhood was, shall we say, a, a period of stress for me. Um, wasn't particularly what I would call the happiest experience. And I felt I was always getting the short end of somebody's stick. Hmm. Whether it's my parents or my older siblings or peers, it seemed like, you know, if there's a short end of the stick, oh, that's the end that Mark has. And then, oh, you know what? Oh, those animals are getting the short end of the stick too. Hmm. Nobody asked them if they wanted to be killed for hamburger and done humanely. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the environment, hmm, that's always getting the short end of the stick, too. And it turns out, you know, amongst all this 
assertions of freedom and liberty and I should be able to eat what I want. And well, what I concluded to be a situation where a party to the conflict is also the referee. Mm. Person who's making a decision about what should or shouldn't be is the person who's benefiting from that decision. Hmm. A definite, <laughs> shall we say, conflict of interest. We, we should have the ability to manipulate that which we own. I own this laptop, and if I want to destroy it, it's it's my call. But mm -hmm. I don't own an animal. Even my daughter sitting here next to me in all her royal fur, her name's Roxy. You know, I don't own her. She's a companion. I don't have the right to kill her because I don't own her. And the same thing for any other animal. It, even, even though the law might give me that authority, I don't own that animal. It's not my right to exploit that which I don't own. It so seems it seems so obvious. It seems so obvious at a basic level, and yet yeah. it's not. It's not yeah. obvious. And the same thing with the environment. I, none of us own the environment, but, right? But so, we dump in the water and we yeah. put bad gas out in the air, and we just yeah, dirty exactly. everything. Yeah. And I mean, if you know, it, you, we have the right to to use it. I guess legally, but do we own it? No, it's it's some it's as um you know the the Native American saying is we're not inheriting it from our ancestors, we're borrowing it from our children. Mm -hmm. Was well, never ours to exploit or fuck with, as some might say. So ultimately, I identified with the animals in the environment and said, you know what, they're always getting the short end of the stick too. And then of course I called my mother, told her on the phone, you know what, Ma, I'm becoming a vegetarian. Oh no, Mark, you're going to stop. Where are you going to get your... Where are you going to get your protein? <laughs> that was our first question. Oh no. 1984. And there were two vegetarians in this class of about eight or 10. In addition to the professor, they were the only vegetarians I knew in, in the entire world. They were obviously alive. So clearly they were in some degree of reasonably decent health. You know, so I had this general impression that I think I can get protein elsewhere uh, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna look more into it, but and and as it turns out, my brother was in med school at the time. Ah, a doctor. A doctor. <laughs> he said, "Don't." He apparently told my mother, and somehow I found out that he told my mother, "Don't let him do this. He's gonna starve." That's so sad. Yep. Yeah. So, well, actually, next month is October. Thirty-nine years of an experiment. Right. Hard to believe. And uh, then I went vegan about a year, year and a half after that, after October 84. So February of 86, opened up eggs for breakfast one morning, saw a little white line in my eggs. Didn't know what the heck it was. Uh huh. Interpreted it to be something it wasn't. But. And then I threw it away and then it did that three more times in succession with three more eggs. And said, hmm, and just reminded me of what I was eating. No, I don't want to do that anymore. And then, you know what, we'll dispense with the dairy as well, which, quite frankly, I was probably eating a dairy-based diet, not a vegetarian diet. Exactly. Because, you know, I didn't know what else to eat. And, you know, my mother from... would say, have cottage cheese. You need cottage cheese. <laughs> Your mother, my mother must have been cut from the same cloth. Yeah, right. Uh, she was always asking me, well, you can have a little bit, can't you? Can't you just eat a little <laughs> bit of this? <laughs> no, Ma, it's not 
quantity, it's presence or absence. Told her that all the time. Yeah, the things we go through just yep. just to be sane because we're living in insanity. This is insanity. The planet with humans on it is insane. Yep. The things that we do are insane. And trying to explain that to people who are caught up in insanity is yep. is a tremendous challenge. But we're here. Yep. I think we're making some progress. And yeah. We just keep pushing forward. But now what we're going to focus on, the reason why I wanted to talk to you today is you just published an article. It's fully loaded, this article. <laughs> it's in the Frontiers in Nutrition website, Nutrition Policy Critical to Optimize Response to Climate Public Health Crises. So, you know, you and I are here we like animals. We don't like ex exploitation. You've dug in and you got a master of science in health education. You're a registered dietitian. And then recently you went through this environmental master path. You know a lot and you know how it's all connected. And you see how the things we've been talking about for decades are finally uh, everything that we were warned of is, is here at our doorstep. Yep. I remember... I remember talking about the greenhouse gas, what was then called the greenhouse gas effect in the early 1990s. I admit it seemed, you know, far away in the distance. This isn't happening now. That, that's 100 years, 200 years away. But here we are. Now, I always like to say that we won't really see significant change until people's comfort is affected. Right. And there are many people who are still quite comfortable. Yep periods of the year maybe things are getting a little difficult okay so a few people have lost their homes in fires and floods and <laughs> and hurricanes oh you know what is it thoughts and prayers right it's serious yep okay so let's jump in what motivated you to write this article and let's touch on some highlights the whole piece <laughs> so so this was part of a special issue announced by the publishers called Humanity in the Anthropocene. That may be a new term for a lot of listeners, which literally means the age of man, or more precisely, humans. Not only the age of humans, but the age of humans' impacts on the planet's life systems. And the, the, the special issue focused on, okay, what is humanity going to be like in the Anthropocene? What are we facing now that climate change is undeniably here? impacts are being felt globally. So, you know, as a dietitian who's talking about chronic diet-related disease for what seems like forever, our words have been largely ignored, of course, with, of course, no documented help from the government. Okay, well, what happens if you have a person with heart disease who's living in, I don't know, Arizona or Southern California, it's only 118 degrees. Well, that's not really all that hot because, of course, it's a dry heat, right? Right, um, dry heat. Well, not only do they have heart disease, but they they have obesity as well and hypertension and diabetes. Oh, guess what? They just lost power. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, now they can't refrigerate their insulin. Mm. Of course, you know, can't sit at home at 118 degrees. So now you've got to be evacuated. With all of your medications, and of course, you know, your mobility is probably limited. 
due to your chronic state of infirmity, this is going to be a problem. So as it turns out, you know, it's the CDC documents that 60% of our population has at least one chronic disease. Mm-hmm. And that's going up. And that's going up. Well, I mean, if you're going to do it, you might as well do it well, not just, <laughs> you know, sort of half ass. So, and of course, two thirds of this population, two thirds of 60% or 40% of the total has more than one chronic disease. So, of course, we don't just have heart disease alone. We have heart disease and hypertension and we probably have arthritis and okay, which means nearly half of us are severely debilitated to some degree. Of course, as it turns out, disaster planning presumes that people are fully functional and uh, can safely self-evacuate, self-mobilize in the event of an emergency. I have a packet that was recently given out at one of these outdoor fairs here in my community. Ready New York emergency plan. I don't think there's anything in here that says that you should eat healthy so that you'll be able to manage an emergency. Why would they say that? (laughs) There's nothing in here about that. That would be wrong. You know, a, a lot of people look to a certain movie and say, you know, so for me, my movie that says everything is happening the day after tomorrow with what's his name, Hall, And then Superstorm Sandy came along two years later. And uh, I can't imagine what it was like living in New York with Superstorm Sandy. Fortunately, uh, where I am in Queens, in New York City, we were okay. And there were plenty of spots that were, but the people that were close to the water were right. not. And... You know, we had some coastline that's been totally rebuilt and the boardwalk is lovely now. So, you know, who cares about Sandy? <laughs> I understand a substantial portion of lower Manhattan was flooded. By my oh, memory. Man, yeah, flooded. <laughs> that was a long time ago. Hey, we've right. been through 9-11. We, we're a resilient population. Right. Yep. Are we waiting for, the, for something that we cannot overcome? I don't know. Or... When when you have these events and they become more frequent and they're piled up on top of each other while you're trying to repair from one and all of a sudden you're hit with another, then it's going to get even harder. So we have people that have health issues and we know, we know, we know, we know, we saw all of this coming and we know it's going to become more frequent. And what does this have to do with food, Mark, really? <laughs> we only have... We only have an hour. <laughs> so, of course, most of the most of the chronic disease is diet related. And of course, plant based diets can be applied healthfully or less than healthfully. But but if applied healthfully, they prevent most and pr- probably treat most of these chronic diet related diseases that are not only impacting our individual resilience, but our collective resilience and our ability, our ability to respond in the face of disasters. How good is your first responder going to be if he or herself has diabetes and or they're, they have overweight and it's 118 degrees? Oh, well, and they're, you know, they're on fire, fire department, so they got to wear that heavy equipment. Mm. Oh, it's only 118 degrees. It's a dry heat. They're not going to be able to respond. So who are we exactly relying upon? Are we going to have to rely upon our neighbors, ourselves? Of course, our neighbor has, you know, they've already had a below the knee amputation because of their diabetes. They're not going to be all that helpful. Well, the young people. Right. The The young young people people will help. So basically, we made a mess. We could have prevented much of this chronic diet related disease, but we chose not to. We could have, of course, prevented 
climate change, which of course is not totally related, but largely related to our diet because of the methane emitted by ruminants. We could have moderated both of these, but we chose not to. We basically defaulted to a decision of let's do nothing because we don't know what change might bring. So better the devil we know than the devil we don't. Well, here's the devil we we know, and the devil we know turns out to be a real son of a bitch. Oof. And let's just add to that an occasional pandemic. (laughs) Well, those are minor issues that nobody really needs to really be all that concerned about. So as it turned out, of course, well, they're, they're still debating its origins, but I firmly believe it's a result of human humans' exploitation of the environment, largely induced by the effects of climate change on subsistence and low-income economies, which push them into encroachment and violation of wildlife habitat and increase the exposure of wildlife and wildlife-captured animals. So basically, humans got this virus transmission, they think, from bats or from pangolins, which is a four-legged animal, looks much like an armadillo. So it turns out most of the infectious diseases that we now have, like believe 60% are clearly and definitely associated with livestock. Hmm. Which takes me back to a book, and I believe it was also a movie as well, called Guns, Germs, and Steel. Hmm. You familiar with that? No. Author name is Jared Diamond, who makes the case that European colonizers' ability to have an effect on the health and life of Native Americans was not only because of their guns and their steel, because of their germs. Where did those germs come from? Because they were literally living with livestock. We think of livestock as somewhere off in that field somewhere, but 300, 400 years ago, the livestock were literally living in the house with the people. What did the Native Americans not have? They had no livestock. Zero. And of course, the Europeans that survived, of course, were able to survive because of some degree of resistance. So they brought all these wonderful germs and exposed Native Americans who had no such resistance because they had developed no livestock culture. That always mystified me. Why did, you know, the Europeans survived. Why didn't the Europeans die of smallpox? Turns out smallpox, they believe, they're not 100% certain, but they believe originated from cows. Of course. Well, that was a convenient way to wipe out the Native Americans. Come on, Mark. Was that actually a conspiracy? I think, I don't know. But you think when they knew that their blankets were infected and they were giving them away. Mm -hmm. Let's let's give them some alcohol to go with that. And of course, I could never figure out why did the Native Americans die in such huge numbers? That's why, because of the livestock. So I suspect that right now it's only 60% of our infectious diseases. I believe it's eventually going to be 90% uh, once they work out the origins are going to be associated with either wildlife or livestock or both. And of course, well, let's say COVID is now again rear. It seems to seems to be on the resurgence again um, with a new variant. But they have that. There's other pandemic pathogens waiting in the wings, just waiting for the right opportunity to explode, so to speak. Our livestock culture is basically a recipe for a pandemic. You could predict it. Mm, mm, that's a good title: recipe for a pandemic. Yeah, just add some salt, put it on the grill, and and you know you're ready to go. Again, our diet. Creates risk for pandemics, drives up risks of chronic disease, aggravates climate change, and inhibits our ability to adapt to to the effects of climate change. We made a mess of public health. 
Right. And you touched on this before that our systems that are in place, our healthcare and first response systems, our hospitals yep. and, and our staffs and our equipment are not prepared for yep. real emergencies. Most of our healthcare systems are stretched already just due to the effects of chronic disease. Let's add a pandemic. Let's add a hurricane or two. Let's add a tornado. And, I just and think the grid is also where we get our electricity is also quite stressed. And when it goes down and it will, yep. we're really in trouble, especially if it's 118 degrees and you don't have air conditioning. If you cannot run equipment that's necessary in a hospital and so on. Yep. What, what do we do, Mark? What's the answer? It's a dry heat. It's a dry heat. <laughs> I've been saying that a lot this summer. Uh-huh. It's a dry heat. Well, inevitably, some people will be able to buy their way out. And, of course, some people will not. Now, of course, if there's a wildfire that's burning down your town, your affluence may not make much of a difference. But for most of the other scenarios, you know, you're always going to be able, those who are fully mobile can always move uphill, move further away from the tornado or get out of the flood. Somebody's going to be left behind. And, of course... You know, the system at that point then tends to try to rally the resources and go to the ends of the earth to save that one, that individual, who of course, who probably already passed on. But nonetheless, we were endangering first responders and the system system's capacity as a whole, you know, like most things in crisis management. I've mentioned, well, I don't know if I did mention healthcare. Well, you mentioned healthcare, but it's not really, of course, healthcare. It's crisis management. In the there's a fable that I, I sometimes refer to about I don't know if that has a title, but we have all the fancy ambulances. People keep falling off the cliff, but, you know, we have all the best ambulances at the bottom of the cliff. They're fast. They've got all the bells and whistles, all the latest technology. They've got blood on board. Nobody ever bothered to put up a fence. But, hey, we got all the best ambulances. You know, I live in New York City. We were walking through, I think it was down Ninth Avenue the other day, and massive traffic. Okay, I never drive through the city. You cannot move from block to block. And there was an ambulance trying to get through, and it just couldn't. And I just kept praying, you know, saying, I I hope everything's going okay inside there. And I was thinking, you know, you just imagine it's you inside that ambulance or someone you care about. I don't know if it's true what they say about New York drivers, but. Yeah, they can be very creative. (laughs) But that ambulance was really having a hard time. Yeah, I don't know how I don't know how first responders do it in a city that's as that doesn't move. Yeah, like New York, it's just and then oh well, let's let's make more people. There is that. I decided a long time ago not to have children because yep, I knew as a teenager that the environment couldn't manage it. Yep. Okay, I'm not a religious person, but I. I went to Hebrew school. I had a bat mitzvah and I had to give a speech. I wish I saved it. I don't think it was very good. I don't think it was well written, but there was an underlying theme. And that was, why are all of you, the yous that were in the pews, the yous in the pews. Yous in the pews? I've never heard that. All the yous, the Jew yous in the pews. Why were you allowing this to happen? Why were you allowing starvation? Why are you allowing people to suffer? And I wasn't even thinking about animals at the time, but why are you allowing this to happen? And this right. was this question. 
that I had that was not answered by anyone. And I just thought, okay, I'm just not going to add to this mess. Turns out 18 years ago, I moved in with my mother into a condo in the middle of the Jewish hood in Baltimore. And so many young women, if they don't have three kids by the time they're 23 mm. or four, mm-hmm. you know, they got a late start. Uh, what the heck's their problem? It's insanity. Yeah. You know, and I can certainly understand, you know, from their religious philosophical perspective, they are doing what their God told them to do, which is be fruitful and multiply. But we live on a finite planet. Mm-hmm. One can ignore that if one chooses. But, you know, gravity doesn't go away just because you don't believe in it. Oh, now, wait a minute. Now there are the people that are the flat earthers, and they would probably tell you otherwise. <laughs> it's a shame if you happen to be on the on the, on the the bottom side of that flat earth. You just fall off. <laughs> I respect their, their religious right to do as they choose, but do we really need to make more people ad infinitum? Because our, you know, some religious book from 5,000 years ago commanded us. To do it? Okay. Well, maybe when there was 100,000 people on the entire planet, that made sense. Maybe. Well, we're a little bit past that. And I don't understand how people who have such a deep religious devotion to doing the right thing, or any religion, doesn't have to be the Jews, but okay, let's do the right thing. Recognize Mm -hmm. the reality that is in our face, which is a finite planet. Can't continue to generate more demand for resources from a finite system. It doesn't compute. It just doesn't. But we do. Anyway. We do. So that's basically the gist of my paper is that we made a mess of public health. And the one thing that we can do, we can't fix climate change immediately. But what we could do, hey, we could work on this thing called diet-related chronic disease. Given the political will, we could institute programs tomorrow that could start having an, an almost immediate effect, certainly in some communities within a year. I remember Robert Goodlin and Jeff Hang's paper which was hmm, maybe 15 years ago now. I don't even know when it I came out. 2007. 20... So yeah, yeah something that like that. And it was exactly that. It was to mitigate our problems. If we want to slow things down, stop the bleeding, literally, we could all eat better. And then we would have time to make more significant changes in our infrastructure and the way our society works. It'd be wrong to tell people what to eat, though. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're doing it a little in New York with our Mayor Adams, who is very vegan influenced. Yes. And that's a good thing. And it annoys a lot of people. And I don't even think they understand the long term vision that he has. Right. Because everybody wants to have their problems fixed today. And all the politicians, or most of the politicians do that. They're looking at at short-term solutions so that they can stay in office and be elected in again and everyone will like them, but we need long-term strategies. And so he's doing a little of that. He's, And uh, I'm not saying that I agree with everything that he's doing, but I'm very glad that he understands the benefit of a whole food plant diet. So how are your neighbors responding yeah, well, I had a conversation recently at a meeting and, and you know, people don't like Eric Adams, boom. And I try and say, but look at the things he is doing that you don't hear about. Mm-hmm-hmm. You know, you put out a paper, which is really important. And I don't know how many people are reading this type of information and connecting the dots. We're right. starting to see 
regular information in mainstream news about the climate crisis because we have to, but it doesn't, it's not paired with the solutions that matter. Yeah, I very much agree, unfortunately. I will say at least you have a mayor that is doing something mm-hmm. in this arena. Our mayor, shall we say, is hyper-focused on other issues, and food policy is just simply, it's not very evident on his agenda. I'm very curious about how we communicate this larger message of, we don't really have a choice. As you know, I mentioned gravity earlier, one of my mantras is, you know, you can ignore climate change. Climate change is not going to ignore you. You know, we ignore it at our own peril. Mm-hmm. So how do we, con- and I'm, I don't know if you saw, there was a another paper that just came out um, in the last five days. 12% of the American population consumes half the beef intake on any one given day. What? Yep. No, half? Right here at home? <laughs> Wait a minute. I thought we were eating less beef. Nope. Production, unfortunately, has is relatively stable over the last 10 or 15 years. And, you know, with this obsession, the American continuing, continuing American obsession with protein has certainly not helped that. But yeah, according to this paper produced, um, written by a professor at Tulane, with whom my organization has a collaboration, collaborative relationship, 12% of the American population, or one in eight, is driving 50% of our intake of beef yeah. on any one given day. In other words, you might co- might call these uh, the hardcore beef eaters who are extreme, extremely resistant to any calls for change. Even modest reductions in beef intake are simply not acceptable to these folks. And of course, these folks are largely not women, shall we say. They're largely men, and thou shalt not challenge their machismo in any way, in any way possible. And of course, how do they manifest that machismo? Well, it's not by listening to Bach or Brahms or Beethoven, by putting a big slab of beef on the grill, because they're a manly man. Right. And unfortunately, they obviously haven't seen the game changers and gotten the message that it affects their virility. That would be wrong. Real men do not eat beef. That's just more woke philosophy. (laughs) Right. Woke philosophy. Oh, dear. So does it matter that 12% are eating a lot of beef? But what about, can we reach everybody else and make a difference? In theory, yes. Um, And that's an important point. The one that I would emphasize is that let's not focus on the 12% because they're not going to they're not going to listen barring mm-hmm. a, a a proverbial gun to their head forcing them to change but we can focus on the 88% that are driving the other half of beef intake and get them and encourage them with the right incentives and if you're familiar with the term nudge not nudge <laughs> but there are what they call nudges in behavioral economics that drive people to make the desired change without legally requiring them to do it, such as putting the vegetarian or vegan options on a restaurant menu at the top of the menu, or, you know, in a retail environment, driving them toward certain products on the shelf versus other products on the shelf. And of course they do that now, just we need to switch the products. We can do this, but it's going to take broad scale of change at all levels of society, institutions, governments, you know, the population as a whole is going to have to, shall we say, it's it's an all hands on deck situation. I like 
like to think that the younger generations are getting it more than the older generations. And maybe I'm wrong, but I like to think that. And so I think the older generation just needs to die off. And then the younger ones can be in position of power and make positive right. change. And unfortunately, the older generation, and you know, I'm a part of it now, but is not dying off fast enough. You're 39. I'm 38. <laughs> That's partly true, I would say. And yeah, in, in the words of somebody I read once, we don't change policy by changing minds. We change policy by changing the bodies, literally by the death of the old people mm. and their old ways of thinking. And new people move in and literally change policy because now we have new minds, new perspectives, new philosophies. But I agree. Well, crisis management, we are managing people as well into what they call polypharmacy, polymorbidity. Just look at our Senate minority leader. Certainly that person's mindset needs to have, shall we say, been needs to have been replaced a long time ago. It happens on both sides yeah. of the political yep. spectrum. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it, it, of course, at some point, even people who are resistant to such change are going to have to face the music. But the longer we wait, the, the higher the pain. And the- Okay, let's shift a little bit. I just want to tap into some of your opinions on things. So In this plant-based movement, in this plant movement, there is now a vast range of what that means and the products that are available to us and the, the foods we choose to eat and the things that we choose to avoid. You know, I would like to think that we can all join together and be one big, powerful movement. And that's not quite happening. There's a lot of infighting and disagreement, even with the best of the best that agree on so much, focusing on the little things that don't seem to be that little. So let's have fun with some of that. Okay. I want to hear what, I want to hear how Mark feels about some of these things. So let me guess, one topic starts with the words beyond and impossible. (laughs) Yeah, let's start with meat alternatives, plant meats, cell meats, processed meat analogs. And, you know, in that category is a range. Yep. First, let me say that I'm not an absolutist in terms of diet purity. In fact, I would suggest that we run from the terms pure and purity. In the words of somebody, we don't need another 5 million vegans. We Mm -hmm. need several hundred million part-time vegans. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So the impact from several hundred million part-time vegans is going to be far beyond 5 million vegans who are trying to be perfect. Let's not let perfection be the enemy of the good. Do I like the nutrition of Beyond and Impossible? Not really. Is it an improvement nutritionally over their meat-based counterparts? Uh, Probably to some degree. And I'm not really focused so much on the sodium and the fat. What I'm looking at is the contaminants. that bioaccumulate up the food chain. Everybody sort of forgot about that. Many people may not be familiar with food chains, but basically a lot of the contaminants that we put in the environment are what we call fat soluble. So when we eat the fat of an animal, we eat everything that 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 animal has ever eaten in its life because those contaminants to a large degree were not excreted. They were stored in the fat. Thus, we, you know, the, the a really common example of that is the effect of mercury in some fish um, and DDT in eagles from the 70s. Small fish eat, get eaten by larger fish, get eaten by larger fish. The, that fish at the top of that food chain has accumulated a substantial level of contaminants, far beyond that, roughly 10 times that of the lower level. But I thought fish was healthy, Mark. Well, not to the fish, it's not. <laughs> um, well, it's not for us either if we're eating 
all of this accumulation of toxins. Obviously. So, yeah. So now we have this problem with mercury. And of course, the mercury didn't get there by accident. You know, we put we put the mercury there. Mercury is the one is the contaminant that our FDA happens to focus upon. There's how many thousands of other contaminants that the FDA has not bothered to regulate, not bothered to educate the public about, not to mention even the high mercury fish are not illegal to sell, Mm. distribute Mm -hmm. or consume. Just don't eat them if you're pregnant. Yeah, just don't eat. Well, you would think if we were really concerned about the public health, we would be banning shark and swordfish, which are the highest high mercury fish, apparently. No, you can still buy them. You can still sell them. You can still eat them. Mm. Isn't that kind of dangerous? Oh, it's Mm -hmm. just a little mercury. (laughs) It's just a little poison. So in that sense of processed meat, yeah, plant burgers are by definition lower on the food chain, thus can concentrate fewer contaminants than their actual meat-based counterparts. Are they paragons of nutritional virtue? No. Are they better than their counterpart? Yes. Should they be the final destination on a dietary transition? Hopefully not, but I'll still take those over their animal-based counterparts simply for the reduced impacts on the environment. But And it can help people get to a better destination. Yeah, exactly. As a transition. I would like to think that the average American omnivore is going to be eating a lot of lentils and chickpeas if we just ask them to. But unfortunately, that's not entirely a realistic scenario. But what they might do is move to vegan chicken and vegan sausage and hey, this stuff tastes just like the stuff I used to eat. Okay. And I still enjoy some of these products myself, but I will say um, I don't really particularly enjoy Impossible or Beyond. It's just a little too much fat and salt. You can do certainly do better. Yeah, it's, I, but of course, you know, skeptics in the media who are probably, shall we say, affiliated with a particular industry, you know, they're going to nitpick on this one big thing and of course, and blow it up way beyond scale and say, see, you're eating that processed stuff. You shouldn't eat that stuff. That's bad. Oh, let me go have a hamburger. Well, wait a minute. The level of processing in a hamburger occurred so it's upstream of the cow, so to speak. Versus that vegan product occurred, shall we say, downstream. Mm-hmm. They're both processed, but one is distinctly more of a health concern than the other. But of course, if you're only looking at that fat and salt picture, oh my God, this is processed. And it, look at that list of ingredients. Oh my gosh, that's a problem. And there's only one ingredient over here. That's beef. Oh, well, that must be pure. Well, in the words of a cartoon that I'm sure you probably remember, it's 100% pure what? 100% pure dioxins and fecal material <laughs> and agricultural chemicals, antibiotics. Absolutely. Yeah, it's 100% pure what? It's not 100% pure anything. You know, cell-cultured meat, Yeah, I don't believe that it's ever going to be a, a dominant part of the solution because anything that's patentable is likely not going to be affordable to the broad section of the population to the scale that would need to be for it really to drive a major shift by itself in dietary habits. It's not simply, they're not going to lower the price enough. They're not going to be able to lower the price enough for it to matter. Yeah. It looks like a very complicated project to make it to a point where they can mass produce it safely. Yeah. And why, why would we want that? Because why do we want to eat meat, even if it's manufactured and there's no cruelty involved it's not good for us yeah yeah 
Human habits die hard. Okay, um, you've you've mentioned uh, salt and fat. Can we talk about salt and fat, like SOS, sugar, oil, salt, whether we want a free life of it or have some of it in our lives? It's not like Mark has any opinions on those things. I, I know. I, I've read your Facebook page. <laughs> well, let's take the easy part of SOS, which is the sugar. There's certainly no requirement for refined sugar in the human diet. Does it make life a little sweeter, so to speak? It certainly does. Do I recommend people just eat refined sugar, you know, freely and without limits? No, of course not. But, you know, a little bit of sugar is not a problem. Problem that I do agree with them about is so often that a little bit is difficult to maintain um, on what they call a slippery slope. And that little bit turns into a little bit more and then a little bit more. And pretty soon you are eating a lot of refined sugar. Mm -hmm. And I will say it is difficult to maintain just eating a little bit because it makes that next increment up just a little bit more tolerable, a little bit more acceptable. And then progressively until you're you know, eating as much sugar as a typical American, which is, I don't know, something like 130 pounds a year of sugar, something like that. So the question is, can we maintain individually and collectively just eating a little bit? And of course, sugar does make the brain feel good. Well, is there an answer to that? And I think the some of the answer might be in policy. Yes. Where industrial foods shouldn't be able to add as much sugar in anything that they want without restriction. You're talking about impediments to our economy there, Karen. <laughs> and of course, if sugar wasn't so ex inexpensive, they wouldn't be adding it so easily either. Are you suggesting we shouldn't be subsidizing corn syrup? I, ne I never said any of that. <laughs> Come on, Karen. Uh, that's yeah. that's anti-American. No, corn should be used as a fuel and as a sweetener and nothing else and fed to animals. Mm -hmm. Of course, like, you know, our subsidies originate from a time when farmers were not doing that well. And then, of course, when somebody supplied the gravy train, it was what was supposed to be a temporary solution to a temporary problem has now become a permanent fixture in American food policy. And there are still farmers that are not doing well, and still many small right. farmers are going out of business every day. Yep. So, so much for that. So, yeah. It's, um, and of course, our government, on the one hand, encourages us to you know limit our intake of refined sugars, while on the other hand, we literally incentivize the intake of refined sugar. What could be better? So in terms of sugar, yeah, a little bit is best. Can you go down to zero and certainly live a full and healthy life? Yeah, you can, but I'm not going to go through the rest of my life without eating another cookie. And more importantly, I don't like the message that that may send to the potential converts. You can never ever have another cookie for the rest of your life. Well, not really sure that's the message we want to send. Do they need to eat a whole bag of cookies? No, we should be helping them move, move away from eating that whole bag of cookies and that the craving for that bag of cookies, but to publicly advance a message that zero cookies is the only acceptable solution, it's simply not a viable message. With salt, which is probably the second most easy out of SOS, most of the salt that we eat, of course, comes from processed food and restaurant food. Very small amounts come from what we sprinkle. The problem is we do have a biological salt requirement, somewhere between 200 and 500 milligrams per day. 200 to 500 milligrams of sodium. So we have a biological need for sodium. We need to meet it every day. So if you buy, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables, the amount of sodium is zero, with the exception of carrots, spinach, beets, and celery, which actually have small amounts naturally occurring. But the rest of them are zero. Hmm. Beans, of course, fresh and dried beans, the, the sodium content is zero. Whole grains, the sodium content is zero. 
nuts, the sodium content is zero. So where are we going to meet our biological need for sodium? We need to add a little bit. Is a little bit a problem? Well, it's a sort of the same thing with sugar. Sometimes that little bit turns into a lot. Problem is, of course, if you happen to live, I don't know, in a state called Texas, where it's a little bit warm and a little bit humid, yeah, you're going to be sweating. Guess what happens when we sweat? We lose sodium in our sweat. Can mm -hmm. you be eating a SOS diet, working, I don't know, outside for eight or 10 hours a day, sweating? I don't recommend it. Hmm. You actually have a problem called hyponatremia, hyponatremia, which is low sodium in the blood. Why? Because you didn't eat enough and you, what little you had in your body, you sweat it out and you can't replace it with just water. We need to eat that sodium on a regular basis. So, of course, the problem is, I will agree, the food industries, the restaurant industries don't help. And, of course, in many cases, the restaurant industries don't fully disclose their sodium content because if they're not, what is it, uh, 20 locations, if they don't have 20 locations under the same banner, they're not obligated to report their sodium. A little bit of salt is not a problem as long as you're the one sprinkling. And I try to do the same thing, except I let my sodium be the condiment. So... I might, you know, make a stir fry with, you know, tofu, of course, is zero sodium, you know, a whole bunch of, of vegetables and a stir fry, but my sauce is bottled. So my base ingredients of tofu and vegetables have zero sodium. I put that over a whole grain like barley or kamut, zero. I add a peanut sauce. I'm now in control of the sodium because I'm in control of the peanut sauce. Am I worried? No, as long as I'm not swimming in the peanut sauce, which of course can be a problem if you really enjoy peanut sauce. Like I do. <laughs> yeah. For me, the key is not a necessarily an entirely whole food plant-based diet. It's a mostly whole food plant-based diet mm -hmm. because you can add a little bit of processed food, but it can't be the dominant source of your nutrition. It can be there in very small amounts and probably will actually enhance your health, actually. Then there's oil. Then there's oil, uh. which for some people is not a three-letter word, but a four-letter word. So, of course, there is a distinct component of our movement that avoids all oil all the time from any source, anywhere. Can they be healthy? They can be if they're eating whole food fats. So mm -hmm. fat is actually has a requirement of roughly, for round numbers, let's say it's a, roughly 15 to 17 grams of fat. A tablespoon of oil has about 15. So we need a minimum to survive of that small amount of fat. So that requirement, though, is for fat, not oil. You don't need that liquid oil to meet your fat requirement, you could certainly meet that fat requirement through avocado and nuts and seeds and peanut butter and sun butter and God forbid olives. I can't stand olives. Oh, uh, you, more you haven't tea. had a you haven't had a good olive. No, and I never will. <laughs> <laughs> if I get any olives on my vegan pizza, you can have them. Okay, um, thanks. I'll take them. You can have them. So you certainly can meet the, your fat requirements with whole food fats. The problem is we need to eat those whole food fats at every meal, not just getting them at one meal a day. Why? Because some of our nutrients are fat soluble. That healthy beta carotene in those wheat potatoes, we absorb very little without a source of fat. So yeah, you can eat the baked potato plain if you want. You're not going to get much nutrition mm -hmm. out of it if there's not at least a source of fat somewhere. And it has to be at the same meal, not four hours later. And there's actual well, fairly well-documented studies on this. Personally, you might've guessed, I don't really care for olives. I don't buy avocado because they're only ripe for about 20 minutes. Oh, there are so many good tricks for ripe and keeping avocados ripe, but that's another story. That's another story. 
I do enjoy guacamole, but I'm not having guacamole at every meal. I do, of course, enjoy nuts and seeds and nut butters. Let's say I've already eaten my nuts at lunch. I don't want to have nuts again at dinner. Well, I'm not eating olives, not eating avocado. Where's my fat going to come from? While people are focused on getting all these wonderful phytonutrients and fiber with every meal, they should also be concerned about where they're getting their fat at every meal. Fortunately, all fat is not created equal, despite <laughs> the claims of some. Liquid oil doesn't necessarily need to be a problem. It certainly can be if you're eating as much fat as a typical American might be eating in a single meal, which could be literally 40 to 50 grams or more. A Big Mac and a large order of fries has about that much fat. Is that a problem? Yeah. That doesn't mean that two teaspoons of oil in a stir fry are also a problem. But in the eyes of the SOS protagonists, any oil is bad oil. You shouldn't be eating it. Okay, show me the data that a little bit of oil is presents health risks to heart, to obesity risk. There is no data because they don't have it. So well, just yeah. because they don't have it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It's just they haven't done a good test. True. But there's nothing pointing to that. There's nothing pointing your, to that yet. In your in your right. opinion. I'm certainly not encouraging people to pour oil on their food freely without limit. No, as with everything in nutrition, there is something called balance, um, which is one of my key themes, which, you know, just because a lot is a problem doesn't mean that the optimal, optimal amount is zero. And just because a little is okay, doesn't mean that more is better. Exactly. I agree with you. I do like the SOS free concept because it's helped me really reduce salt, sugar, and oil. So I've learned right. to cook water saute and and do a lot of cooking without salt. And I've learned how to sweeten things naturally with fruits. I've said this so many times through my food and diet journey. When I take certain things away from what is included in what I can choose from to eat, I find my world opens up. This has been true when I wanted to stay away from gluten or learn how to cook without gluten for friends and family who had celiac or had intolerances. And I, I discovered this whole world of other grains and other flowers. And it was, it just expanded my palate. And I find I, I've enjoyed learning how to prepare things and increase the flavor with herbs and spices and not rely on salt. For me, it's been fun. I like working and playing in the kitchen. Most people don't. I'm an anomaly. But I've kind of enjoyed it. But that doesn't mean that I'm not using sugar, salt, and oil. I eat in restaurants, and occasionally I'll make a treat, and I will use some of those ingredients. Right. But I have significantly reduced those three things. Yes, and I think you know, for the average American, they can certainly reduce all of those. I will say, you know, sugar is a is probably the biggest challenge out of those three from a chemical standpoint because sugar does tickle the brain. It does moderate the stress and trauma that a lot of people are feeling, thus creating what many people might call a minor addiction. And where, you know, if you've already had a little bit, well, now you need a little bit more to feed that addiction. And for many people, it can be difficult to wean themselves down. So they find that zero is the best number to get them off of sugar because they simply won't be able to manage a little bit effectively. And there are certainly are, there are those people, but um, I guess everybody needs to find what is most appropriate for them. But for me, that would be a message that 
we communicate internally, not a message that we advance to the larger public to say, you know, this is the only healthy way of eating. You know, you should never, ever, ever have refined sugar. Well, maybe once a year. Okay. On your kid's birthday or whatever. That's just not a viable message. And I think it, it drives people away because they think if they're, if they can't measure up to this very high standard, then they don't want to try. Yeah, there is that. Mark, we could talk forever. We can. And we're going to stop here. Oh, Yeah, right? And maybe we'll pick it up some other time. But I really enjoyed connecting with you and seeing you, even though people are listening to this audio. I can see you. Thank you for being on this planet and for doing the work that you're doing. Thank you for what you do. And Just knowing people like you are there makes it makes it easier. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, I definitely appreciate you um, for being in, in your role. And and you must be, you, your real food podcast is what, 18, 20 years? I uh, started 2009. 14, no, what is it? 14. 14. I'm in my 15th year. Yeah, it's been 14 years. Yeah. You know, podcasting really wasn't a thing before 2009. So I got in at the beginning. Well, I'm certainly glad you did been a pleasure reminiscing definitely i don't go to a lot of events anymore like vegetarian summer fest and meetups and things so i don't know when i'll see you but it's good to see you this way i'm grateful for technology for bringing this opportunity to us definitely mark thank you so much for joining me on it's all about food it's been a wonderful moment and just putting out thank you thank you thank you thank you namaste and i will And I will link your article on my podcast page. Be well. Be good. Eat your veggies. (laughs) Right. Have a little bit of oil. (laughs) Uh, Maybe. Okay. (laughs) Take care. All right. You too. Bye. Bye. That's the show for today, everybody. Thanks for joining me. I'm Karen Hartglass, and this has been another episode of It's All About Food. Have a delicious week.